Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 32, 1 through 11. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I keep silent, my bones wasted away through my, own, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are hiding. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bite and bridle, bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to the Painted Room. My name is Mark, if you're new, one of the pastors here at the church. And oh, uh, how the tables have turned. Uh, just a week ago, it was we Sox fans who were in need of consolation, and now there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth in Wrigleyville. And we turn to the Psalms again for comfort. You know that if you've been here, we've been focusing on the Psalms uh, these past five, six weeks now. We're continuing our time in what will be a nine-month focus on the Psalms as a church. Last week, we looked at Psalm 78 and this theme of being rooted in a story. Psalm 78 recounts in broad strokes the history of the Israelite people and also charges the parents in Israel to instruct their children in that history, to teach the story of Israel to their children so that those children might be rooted and established in that story. The purpose for that, the psalmist knows, the writer of Psalm 78 knows, that stories have tremendous creative power. The stories that are playing out in our lives, the stories that we come from, our background, our heritage, those things have in them the power to finish the creation of our humanity, to grow us up into the full maturity of humanity that we were born to become. And so the psalmist is charging the parents of Jewish children to teach them their roots so that they would know where it is that they come from and by extension know where it is that they are going, that they would grow up into the fullness of the people that God means for them to be. Now, all of this benefit of being rooted, of knowing your roots, knowing your background, knowing your history, knowing where you come from, that is not only for individuals to employ as they grow up into their individual maturity, it is also for communities. The rootedness, our background, our heritage, where we come from, has creative capacity in communities. It has capacity to grow communities up into fullness and maturity. This is why Jewish and Christian communities to this day 
continue to recount the story of Israelite history, the stories of Israelite history, when we do that, when we come into an awareness of our roots, of where it is that we come from, our Hebraic roots, our Abrahamic roots, it means that when we gather as a community, we are not starting at square one. We're not seeking to forge a unity from scratch. We're coming in with a sort of shared cultural memory that gets us down the road a ways. It means that when we come into community, we already have a unity. We already have a depth of shared experience that we can begin to explore and discover together. This is true, of course, for Jewish and Christian communities. As Christians, we believe that all of the stories of ancient Israel bubbled up into the story and person of the Lord Jesus, that he was the fulfillment of where all the Old Testament stories were going. Jesus built on those stories. His biography, his life sprang out of those roots. And that means by extension for us as Christians, when we come into that story, it has become personal for us. We have more than just a shared memory. We have a shared personhood. We come into the person of Jesus together such that we are not simply exploring and discovering a history together. We are exploring and discovering personhood together. All of the fullness of personhood is at hand for Christian communities, for those communities that are in Christ. This means that we can discover, live into joy and laughter and grief and embarrassment and ambition and despair. All of the fullness of what it is to be human is available for us to discover together, to wade into the depths of together to grow up into the fullness of personhood together such that we would become a deeply human community. What a beautiful picture that would be, that together we would experience all of that and grow up into that fullness such that we could provide a real humane human community to the world. This is beautiful in theory, (laughs) but there is a big problem that stands against, stands in opposition to that maturing community in Christ. And that problem is us. (laughs) We are a bit self-absorbed. Not sure if you've noticed that. (laughs) We're a bit self-centered. When we come into Christian community, when we come into church, we often see it more as an opportunity to get something for ourselves, our religious 
warm fuzzies, our social needs, our moral checkboxes, whatever it is, we see it as an opportunity to gain something for ourselves first, more so than we do as an opportunity to lay our lives down in love for one another. And so then, as our selfishness and self-absorption begins to fly, as we start to hurt one another, as selfish people collide, it becomes almost impossible for us to forgive one another. Because why would I forgive or endure people who are failing to provide to me the only thing that I'm here for? If I've come into church to receive certain things and those things are not being provided, what possible incentive would I have to forgive, to remain, to endure, to go deeper? And so this unforgiveness oftentimes can begin to divide us. Self-absorption manifesting in unforgiveness, in fact, is the toxin of fallen humanity. It's the toxin of our world. It's the toxin that divides families, the toxin that destroys marriages, it's the toxin that ends friendships, and it's the toxin that ruins church communities. And this is a very old story. This toxin, this poison, has been ruining communities of faith, even those communities rooted in Christ, for millennia. It has been too much for us to face, too much for us to overcome. And if you've been here in this church for any stretch of time, no doubt you have witnessed this toxin, this poison at play in and among us. I've seen it myself over the course of the years of our church. People that I have married running toward divorce in a sort of fit of self-absorbed unforgiveness. Friendships coming to an end. I've lost friends in this church whether because of my own unforgiveness or theirs. I remember six-plus years ago now, when we had just started the church, there was a young man who wrote me a long letter detailing all of the ways that I was failing as a pastor. And this was like a knife cutting into my deepest fears. I was insecure and unable to endure it. So I remember inviting this person into my office and sort of blowing up at them, demanding that they not speak about our church for a period of up to six months, overreacting, acting out of my fears and insecurities, and letting hostility win the day rather than forgiveness. I was hurt and bitter. Didn't want to be exposed as inadequate. 
I'm sure those of you who have been around for any stretch of time could tell your own stories of unforgiveness. Whether your own or that of someone else, people that you have hurt and been left unforgiven by, people that have hurt you and that you have not been able to forgive. This is at play, it's at work in our community. It's a real problem, it's a toxin. That young man who wrote me that letter, he wound up leaving the church. How could he do otherwise? How could he sit and receive a ministry that claimed to be all about forgiveness when the minister himself would not forgive? This is what this toxin does. It divides people. In Psalm 32, which we read a moment ago, King David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The experience of being left unforgiven is what David is meaning to capture here. He says it is like having the life drained out of your bones. The experience of being left unforgiven is like laboring in a field on a scorching summer day with no water or shade in sight. It's overwhelming, and this is what we do to one another in our unforgiveness. This is the experience that we force on one another in our unforgiveness. And the question is, what is to be done? If you have ever been hurt or betrayed in any significant way, you know just how hard, just how impossible it is to forgive. Because forgiveness is releasing someone who doesn't deserve to be released. Sometimes we can talk ourselves into releasing someone if we can convince ourselves that the hurt or betrayal we've experienced at their hands was an accident, that there was no malice or ill intent. Even then, it's difficult, but oftentimes then we are able to release someone, but that's not forgiveness. That's clearing up a misunderstanding. What of these instances where there is no misunderstanding, where someone has said or done something That is hurtful. That has hurtful intent, even malice in it. It's impossible to release that person. And so this problem, this toxin of unforgiveness is born in our community. And what are we to do with it? Has anyone ever been stuck there where you are holding a grievance 
and can't release it. Anyone stuck there now? Perhaps in relationship with someone in our own church community, perhaps more broadly outside this particular church family. We all find ourselves stuck there at points in our lives, whether we will admit it to ourselves or not. And when we are, we are left wondering how it would even be possible to ever forgive that person, those people. Well, I have some surprising news for you today if you're willing to receive it. And that is that the task of forgiveness is not up to you. That God does not demand that we reach into the resources of our own being and find forgiveness for one another. He doesn't place that burden on us. It's a burden too heavy for us to carry. The burden of drumming up forgiveness from within ourselves is too much. It would crush us. Because we aren't the Savior. We aren't the Savior, therefore we can't do the saving. We can't do the saving of the friendship. We can't do the saving of the marriage. We can't do the saving of the family. We can't do the saving of the church community. We are not the Savior, therefore we can't do the forgiving. God And God alone is the Savior of us all. And God and God alone can do this strange, mysterious thing called forgiving. He alone can carry that burden. King David writes about forgiveness, this theme of forgiveness throughout the Psalms. And he recognizes this throughout the Psalms. Sort of talks himself into seeing this, the impossibility of drumming up forgiveness from within his own members, but also this glorious news of God providing forgiveness for humanity. He says famously in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. David is acknowledging that it is God alone who has the authority to judge sins. It's God alone who has the authority to interact with sin, to forgive sin. That sin is against God, and therefore he is alone, the one who can forgive it. Here in Psalm 32, David again acknowledges this. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Only God forgives. It's not your work to do as though you could. Our fallen, broken humanity doesn't have it in us. It would crush us. 
And so God carries it for us. God does the work of forgiveness for us. He is the source of all forgiveness in the world. David again speaks of this in Psalm 103, speaking of the sort of person that can forgive, namely God. And this description of God in Psalm 103 ought to highlight in your own mind just how unable you are in your own strength, in your own members, to muster forgiveness. David writes of this gracious God in Psalm 103, starting in verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is precious news to hear of a God who is overflowing in grace and mercy and steadfast love, a God who separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, a God who releases undeserving people who forgives undeserving people, who suspends us in his grace. He handles all the forgiveness that the world needs. In every instance of offense, every instance of betrayal, every instance of hurt, God has supplied ample forgiveness. He has sourced the world with forgiveness so that we might be spared from the division and destruction and ruin that our unforgiveness would otherwise produce. So that friend who has betrayed you, who has hurt you deeply, she's forgiven. That spouse who has cut you in the most vulnerable places of your heart, that spouse who deserves to have your fury unleashed, he's forgiven. Your dad, your mom, your pastor, your boss, forgiven. God has done the heavy lifting. He's lifted this burden of having to figure out how to forgive one another off of us, knowing that we couldn't carry it. And he's placed it on the shoulders of his son. Jesus did the crushing work of forgiveness for us. That is the testimony of the life and death of Jesus. That God has carried that bloody, crushing work for us. 
So what then? This gracious God has lavished the world with mercy and forgiveness, has covered over the sin of the world, has rescued the world from its unforgiveness. He's handled it. Therefore, I can go on holding my bitterness. If it's not up to me to forgive, if God is going to do the forgiving for us, then I can go on holding this condemnation over the head of those who have wronged me in some way? Well, yes. You can. But you will be clutching at vapor. Because God has forgiven the world. That is to say, he has gutted sin of its power to condemn. For you to hold on to condemnation, bitterness against someone else, is to hold on to a lie. God's forgiveness is true. That is to say, in forgiving the world, he has altered the cosmic reality such that sin now has no power to condemn. The right to condemn that we feel when we are sinned against or when we witness someone sin against the weak, it's a fiction. We have no right to condemn that person. We have no right to stand in judgment over them. The condemnation that we are clutching at is no more. It is as vapor escaping through our fingers. It cannot be held onto. It doesn't exist anymore. So then the only question really for us is whether we will receive this reality or go on grasping after a lie. Go on inventing the fiction of our right to stand in judgment over one another. The greatest threat to our community, the greatest threat to all communities, all relationships, in fact, is not unforgiveness. God has already swallowed that poison. The greatest threat to our communities and to our relationships with one another is being unwilling to receive this gift that God has given. It's to resist this free gift of forgiveness that he has lavished on the world, that he has lavished on us, that he has lavished on our enemies. We don't have to do the forgiving, thanks be to God. We could not have done the forgiving, but we have to receive the gift. We have to let go of pretending, let go of holding on to the lie. And that is no simple thing. 
to let go of the lie that we have a right to stand in judgment over someone else, to let go of that self-vindicating fiction, is to give up that seat that you and I love so dearly, that seat of judgment that we sit on and look at the world from, that seat that convinces us that our vision of things is right, that our calls about rights and wrongs are accurate, that seat that puts us up above the rest of the world, that seat that trusts our own sight, to receive the gift of forgiveness from God is to give up that seat, is to be demoted from a judge to a commoner. Because as it turns out, our judgments have proven false. We have judged that sin gives us the right to condemn, and God has said no, Sin gives you no right to condemn. We have practiced malpractice from the judgment seat. And to receive the new reality of the forgiveness of God, of the lavishing of the grace of God, is to relinquish our judgment seat, to demote our egos, to become... Nobody's. David speaks to this in Psalm 103. After lauding God, this great merciful one, this gracious one who forgives sinners, he writes this of us. For God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. To receive the reality of God's forgiveness, of his gracious act on behalf of sinners for the whole world, is to be demoted to our lowly station. We cannot receive the forgiveness of God and go on pretending that our judgments, that our judgments to condemn are right and true. These two things cannot go together. We must be reduced. Our own standing in the world must be reduced and demoted in order to receive the reality of God's forgiveness. We can't go on holding the lie of our own ability to assess sinners, even those sinners in closest proximity to us, those who have hurt us most deeply. We have no right to judge them. God has forgiven them. And so we are reduced, we are brought low when it turns out that all of our judgments have been mistaken. 
we judged condemnation, and God judged mercy. That young man that wrote me the letter six-plus years ago, just recently he reached out, and we met for coffee, and not long into the conversation, he told me that he was sorry. And through tears, I told him that so was I. And we sat there in the forgiveness of God, reduced to nobody's, and yet in the joy and peace of our unity in Christ. There is a freedom and a unity that has been given to us if we would only relinquish our place on the judgment seat. We have one faith, one baptism, one Lord who is the Savior and forgiver of us all. David closes Psalm 32 this way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you've not left us to master forgiveness in our strength. Thank you that you haven't left us in our bitterness and our mutual condemnation of one another in our self-righteousness and self-absorption and lording of our moral high ground over one another. We thank you for the gift of Christ and his forgiveness, and his grace. Pray that you would break down our defenses, that we would open our hands and let the vapor and fiction and lies go. Help us to receive your forgiveness and to receive Christ for ourselves and for one another. We pray in his name. Amen.